your hosts have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates inside and outside of the courtroom. Both partners are experienced trial attorneys who have been board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Welcome back to For Better, Worse, or Divorce. I'm Jake Gilbreth, and I'm here with Brian Walters. We will be continuing our mental health and addiction and litigation series. And so for this podcast, we'll be talking about some of the personality disorders that are mentioned less, or at least I see them less in my practice. But I've had clients or I've had folks on the other side that are have kids with somebody that's been married to somebody or has kids with somebody that has a histrionic or dependent personality disorder, or even sometimes I see psychological evaluations where it comes back and it says personality disorder. I think it's personality disorder NOS is what they say, not otherwise specified. And just, you know, dealing with just like borderline, just like narcissistic personality disorder, you know, we're not experts, but we do see this sometimes. Yeah, it's been a while for me, at least. And I've seen personality disorder NOS quite a bit. I think actually in, in my practice, there's a psychologist, I think, probably tends to diagnose that more often than not. But, you know, histrionic and dependent personality disorder, I've certainly seen, and I've seen an interplay in litigation. So what about you, Brian? Is that one you've run across, or it's obviously not one we hear about as much? Right. I agree with you. The histrionic one is a lot less common and maybe less less fashionable or Right. Maybe they're searching for a, a more appropriate term. <laughs> Might be a good good example. But the uh, personality disorder, right? It is a uh, fairly common situation to have a diagnosis, or, or I'd say it's fairly common, really actually pretty common to have an allegation or a suspicion by someone um, that that's going on with the other party. Uh, less common to have an actual diagnosis, sort of like borderline. Doesn't mean it's not true. It just means uh, you don't have a diagnosis as, you know, on day one. And you're right. I think some practitioners are a little more a little more favorable to it or a little more common for them to conclude it than than others where others might put it in a, in a different box or something like that or not quite find that it gets all the way to that point. Yeah, it's sort of a practical level. I always think it's interesting when you read these evaluations and somebody comes back and they say, well, they're elevated on the paranoid scales or whatever they are. They're elevated on histrionics. It's like, aren't I supposed to be a little paranoid when I'm going through a divorce and a little histrionic when I'm going through a divorce? But that's, you know, I know they have their instruments that they use and everything. That one's just always interesting to me to read. I think the joke amongst family lawyers is always, you know, we, we use psychological evaluations all the time for our clients and see them and litigate about them and cross-examine experts. But, you know, how many family lawyers, including the two of us, would voluntarily undergo a psychological evaluation? I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure if I'd want to see it. But it's something that's used. So I, I guess, you know, touch on those personality disorders we have. And I kind of want to pivot to some stuff that we've talked about in this series. And as we wrap up this series, just talk about practically speaking, how this is played out in court. You have an evaluation that's, let's say there's an evaluation, a psychological evaluation, and the evaluator comes back and diagnoses somebody with a personality disorder. So I guess let's take a side of piece, Brian, if you've got the client that his or her spouse has been diagnosed with a personality disorder, how is that brought up in court? And how do you deal with that in court? And and I'll sort of chime in, I guess, on the on the reverse side of it. But how, how does that just practically play out? Right. Well, if my client's the one that's been diagnosed, the first thing I'm going to try to do is keep out of court because just because there's a diagnosis that doesn't actually do anything right the psychiatrist doesn't have the right to just say you're diagnosed and now 
you know, and then that something automatic happens, right? That's just a piece of evidence. It's an important one, but it's just a piece of evidence. So I would drag my feet and try to keep us out of the courtroom. I might well go to my client depend after I read it and evaluated it. And by the way, sometimes I'll have another mental health professional's evaluate that evaluation, right? Because I'm not a mental health professional. So if I'm reading somebody's evaluation that concludes that diagnosis, it's, you know, I can't tell whether there's particular weaknesses or strengths to it. I, I mean, there's probably some some things. For example, there's frequently a list of, uh, you know, here's all the people we interviewed. Here's all the things people said. Here's all the, the facts of these people's lives. And if you've got a bunch of factual errors in there, like, no, they, they didn't really have three kids. They had two or, you know, they you know, they, they were never arrested and they said they were or something like that, where they've confused something, then that's a pretty good indication the person's not paid attention to the detail. But yeah, so I try to keep them out of the courtroom. And if I, you know, depending on the strength of, of what we think that evaluation is going to do, uh, I probably sit down with my client and say, this is a good time to consider, you know, a settlement based on, you know, we now have additional piece of information that's not helpful to us. And you go into court and, you know, the judge may or may not take that seriously. But and I've seen that happen a lot, that that helps to resolve a case because there's additional information. So that's where I'd start. And then you go from there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting, though, how many people stop digging, though, right? Once they get the evaluation, it's kind of an end game of like, well, Dr. So-and-so says this, and so it's end-all, be-all of it. And I mean, how many times, like you were giving the example, you read this, and it's like, this person didn't even get my the name of my kids right, or I never told them this, or this, this, you know, they, they got, they talked to this collateral wrong, or they didn't even call the people I asked them to. And we talked about this some in other in the series before, but, you know, the importance, I think, of if, if you get an evaluation that's not favorable or misses the ball or whatever, the importance of getting a rebuttal expert, but also really just the importance of taking that deposition. I'm sort of surprised how many people don't take the deposition of the evaluator if it's not favorable, sometimes even if it is favorable, but if it's not favorable to your client, take the psychologist's deposition and ask for their file and their notes. I mean, you're entitled I believe that you're entitled to everything that psychologist has reviewed, everything that all that psychologist, his or her notes, their file, recordings, anything. And a lot of them, you know, kind of push back on that, frankly. Not all of them, but some of them do and push back and say, you're not going to get to see my work product, which is absolutely not the case as I interpret the Texas Rules of Civil Procedure, and if you're most of these orders for psychological evaluation say I'm entitled to the file, and then get their file and really, you know, talk to them. Because when you read one of these evaluations, it usually says, well, somebody reported to me that this, you know, insert concerning fact, or I talked to so this one collateral, and based on his or her information, I therefore do this diagnosis. And it's just asking that simple follow-up question of, who'd you talk to? Who said that? Well, it's in my notes somewhere. Well, where? Where in your notes is that? I don't remember who I talked to. Well, did you take, you know, you write down everything whenever you take interview people? Do you record these conversations? I've had a lot of cases settle favorably, more favorably than we thought they would be. When you get an evaluation that you don't like or the client comes to you and hires you because the evaluations, you know, the, the evaluators missed the mark. And then, you know, you take the deposition, hire a rebuttal expert, do some digging, and suddenly it's not as potent as it seems. Then there's the flip side, right? You know, you have the client that his or her spouse has the evaluation that diagnoses the other side of the personality disorder. And on that, you know, I think the most important, the, the step that practitioners miss is linking it up to how that affects the child. I mean, it's really easy to go in and say, look, you know, Dr. So-and-so says they've got borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder. But a good judge will sit there and go, okay, so what? What's that mean? 
And as the practitioner, it's, it's our job to say, well, this is how it has affected the child. This is how it will affect the child. This is how it explains the behaviors that you're seeing or that you may see in this child's life. And then a lot of these evaluations have treatment recommendations at the end of them. And it's really important, you know, to point out whether or not somebody's actually following the treatment recommendations. Because it's not a, you know, let's say it's a perfectly done evaluation and somebody's diagnosed with a personality disorder. It's not a death sentence in a custody evaluation. It's a factor. But, you know, there's plenty of us with out there with personality disorders. I, again, if you gave me a, an evaluation, on who knows what it'd say? I think I'm a great dad. But, you know, who knows what an evaluation on me or, or you, Brian, would say? It's just it's not the death sentence that sometimes people make it out to be. But it is a factor and a lot of times a big factor, particularly for judges in a custody case. Yeah, I agree. And it and it should be right. I mean, if if there's a legitimate personality disorder there and you see behaviors that affect things, yeah, I mean, absolutely should be, for sure. And then I guess sort of wrapping up, I mean, just sort of practically speaking to just how these are, you know, because people, we've talked about the evaluation in the last few series, just let's sort of backing up sort of practically. Sometimes it helps people sort of logistically see how, how these things work. So, you know, typically in a case, what I'll see is when there's evaluations done, either the parents agree to it, and that's not uncommon that the parents agree to an evaluation or an amicus or a guardian recommends the evaluation that people go do it. Or if, you know, there's not an agreement, a judge can order it, right? You can have a contested hearing and one parent asks for an evaluation. Usually your judges are going to have two questions is why, why do I think I need an evaluation in this, in this case? And then two, who's going to pay for it? These things are not cheap. They could range between five, 10. I've seen range more than $10,000. You know, just sort of depending on how much work's done. But the judge is going to know why and who's going to pay for it. And of course, who are we going to use? Although the list of names of who we're going to use is, is fairly common in, in all jurisdictions. There's usually a group of folks that do it. Once that person's appointed, there's a court order that's signed. And then there's usually an initial appointment with that evaluator. And then that evaluator is going to be looking for collateral information, documents to review. And I think that's something, and I'd be curious how you approach it, Brian. But for me, you know, obviously I don't want to be I'm not there in the evaluation to my client, and I want it to be a good evaluation. So, of course, I'm not you know, trying to sway it one way or the other. But I do think it's important to prepare your clients for that meeting, to prepare what documents that they're going to be gathering for the evaluator, as opposed to some lawyers that just kind of send you off into the woods and say, you know, let me know how the evaluation goes and, you know, we'll deal with it when it comes back. How do you approach it? Whether it's agreed or been court ordered after a hearing, how do you approach it with your clients? Right. And I think you're exactly right that it needs work from us and it depends on the client a lot. I think that's our, we need to exercise our judgment. Some of our clients probably not a lot of direction guidance. I send mine 45 page uh, continuing legal education publication about about these evaluations and basically what to expect, how they work, what the outcomes are, all, all of that type of stuff. So, you know, and I don't know how many actually read the whole thing, but it, it can't hurt. And then I think there's certain clients that maybe they're too busy in their life or otherwise, and they're not going to do a good job of collecting documents or getting a list of witnesses together. They probably need some help from us or our staff. And and there's probably some also, some of our clients sometimes that are, don't have realistic views of themselves or, or how they're going to present and they need to be, you know, talked to. You know, you want it to be an accurate and honest uh, outcome, but you also don't want your client to be their own worst enemy. And remember that, you know, when someone comes to us in the middle of a divorce and a custody battle, this is the worst time in their lives and they're not functioning at their best, right? They're stressed out, they're tired, they're scared, and sometimes they act out. Uh, that's natural. I think anybody would under those circumstances. And then you don't want them to hurt themselves and, and have the mental health professional make a, a kind of a wrong conclusion based on them having a bad day. 
that might hurt them for the rest of their children's lives or whatever, or at least childhoods. As a practitioner, too, I think it's going back to that, you know, talking about depositions and stuff like that. It's mostly evaluators are going to list the collaterals that they have, what they reviewed and everything. But sometimes you get kind of a vague description from them of what they reviewed. And I do think it's an important question to ask in the deposition, you know, what did you review and who gave it to you? Because, you know, they sometimes you'll discover that it's not really listed in their evaluation. It turns out the opposing counsel gave them, you know, three binders, you know, that are four inches thick a piece. And they reviewed everything from the opposing counsel and never turned around and asked your client. I had one recently I deposed and I think he had reviewed, you know, some text messages or some recordings, which were clearly, you know, pulled out. It wasn't the whole string. Never turned around and asked my client, like, what's the context for this? Just made all these judgment calls based on the um, what he had gotten from the, uh, just from one side and never did the follow-up. And that was an important deposition question to ask because obviously there's context all the time. But yeah, it's all about preparation, right? And communication with the client, every single client's different, every situation is different. But, you know, making sure they understand, like you said, Brian, and, and communicating with the client about what it looks like. I used to also try to warn them, it's a long process. I mean, these evaluators are pretty busy. There's not a ton of them that do it. And you could be looking at months and months and months for how long an evaluation takes, depending on what type of evaluation is. So sort of being prepared for that. And then, you know, the report's issued. So I think every evaluation is going to have a report. My experience is they're pretty dense. They usually take, you know, 40, 50 pages. You know, obviously, Brian, you and I are psychologists, but we've read hundreds of them through our career. If I need help reading it or understanding it, I'll get somebody involved. But that report's issued. But, you know, like we said, that's not the end of it, right? There's sometimes depositions followed up with, sometimes the case is settled. But then if they go to trial, then, you know, the, the evaluator is going to come in and testify. So I think some clients think the report's just going to get marked and the judge is going to read the report and that's the end of it. Actually, really, the, the report itself is, is hearsay. And if you're a bench trial, then they're usually going to be offered into evidence and read by the judge. But in a jury trial, you know, really, the report itself shouldn't come into evidence. The evaluators have to testify and justify everything she's done and, and give her opinion that way. A lot of, you know, bench trials in front of a judge, a lot of times we just mark the reports and enter it. But even in those situations, the evaluator is going to testify and be subject to cross-examination. So just always remember that it's obviously good for a case if, you know, the other side gets the diagnosis that you think supports your case. But if you have the diagnosis that's not supportive, that's not the end of it. Under good cross-examination, you know, good deposition, good cross-examination, you know, these things can fall apart relatively quickly, depending on who the evaluator is. So, and then, you know, it's just the, the idea that practitioner doing, you know, it's like you were saying, Brian, like it's maybe the report doesn't see the lie day in court. There's been times where we've had experts struck. Maybe it does. And we disagree with the diagnosis or we're supporting the diagnosis, or maybe the diagnosis comes out and the judge believes it. And then there's still lots and lots of other factors to consider. So all this series comes back to it's, I think personality disorders are really can really give you a strong indication of how your divorce is going to is going to proceed and that it's going to be a strong factor not the only factor but it's going to be a strong factor in any child custody case and every case is different right that's about like we always do we just take a really broad stroke of things and then of course wrap up with how important it is to have a lawyer if it's us one of our associates or you know whoever your lawyer is having somebody who's you know, knows what they're reading. Again, we're not mental health professionals, but you know, it's just like a medical malpractice lawyer. You don't want to hire the med mal lawyer who's 
never read a, an expert report before in her life or his life representing you and your in your bed mail case. It's the same for, for family law, same for expert reports, any type of expert report, particularly psychological reports. You have somebody, you know, if you're being represented by somebody, you ask them, you know, have you seen this before? Have you read these evaluations before? Who do you work with? What's your experience? Have you tried these cases? Have you cross-examine this expert before or put his or her testimony up on direct examination and kind of ask those questions because these things, like we keep emphasizing, can go right the wrong direction or the right direction really, really quickly. And some of that's unfortunately just determined by the skill of the litigators. So, you know, it's it's always, uh, I guess, an honor for us to be able to jump into these situations. It's interesting. Uh, it gives us the opportunity to help families, but it is it is complicated and it's it can be mishandled really easily if you're not careful. So, you know, I think that's it for as, as far as our mental health series. Obviously, we could probably talk for hours and hours more on various different things about it, but that, that gives us all kind of a broad overview of the series. And so that's what we've got for today. Uh, as a reminder, if you like what you've heard today, do us a favor, leave us a review. That's very helpful. And as a reminder, we appreciate all feedback, just like at the law firm. On the podcast, we appreciate all feedback that we get, especially when it's about the podcast and suggestions that we can do or topics that you'd like to hear. Next week, we're going to shift from personality disorders to dealing with drug abuse and alcohol abuse in divorce and custody cases. So not explicitly mental health issues, but obviously related to that topic. And we'll be moving on to that topic in our series moving forward. So as a reminder, I'm Jake Gilbreth. I'm Brian Walters. Thank you all for listening. For information about the topics covered in today's episode and more, you can visit our website at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of For Better, Worse, or Divorce, where we post new episodes every first and third Wednesday. Do you have a topic you want discussed or a question for our hosts? Email us at podcast at waltersgilbreth.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.